0: because Andy Zaltzman is my guest today. Zaltzman is a critically acclaimed comedian in the UK, where he's been performing at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe since 1999 and collaborating with John Oliver since 2001. They created the hugely popular podcast The Bugle in 2007, only stopping earlier in 2016, when it became acutely apparent that Oliver's Emmy-winning work on HBO's Last Week Tonight had made him too busy to continue working with Zaltzman. Zaltzman is relaunching The Bugle on October 21st, 2016, with a rotating lineup of all-star guest co-hosts featuring comedians from around the globe. He also has brought his interactive political comedy show, Satirist for Hire, to the United States for the first time. He'll be taking requests in advance from audience members via email and performing unique satire for audiences across North America in the month leading up to the 2016 elections. Zaltzman sat down with me after his New York City tour stop to talk satire, cricket, puns, and more. So let's get to it! So Andy Zaltzman, the bugler himself, welcome back to America. Thanks, it's nice to be back. (laughs) It's been too long. How does this compare the first time you visited America?
1: Well, the very first time I came to America was 2003, um, way before bugle time. Um, You
0: were a a young lad.
1: (laughs) I was a mere whippersnapper. Um, I did a, a short run... It was like a best of the Edinburgh Festival season put on in an 80-seat room. Um, oh, in Soho? Oh, God, I can't even remember. It was like an NBC performance space mm-hmm. somewhere down uh, uh, at the bottom of 6th Avenue, I think. Right. And um, there were about sort of five British, One, well, in fact, I say British. One was Australian and there were some Canadians. <laughs> but but uh, people based in Britain who've been at the Edinburgh Festival, and we all did sort of Four half hours over a week It was a bit weird But uh, it was good fun I've got yeah, a bit of time To look around Look around the city Then
0: What was your What was your impression Of, of America then uh, Well I don't know Can
1: you get an impression Of America from just Coming to New York on they <laughs> Essentially two separate Universes
0: <laughs> Billions of people have In right. the past
1: um, Oh well, I liked it It's very uh, well, I guess coming from London It's um, I don't know what, what would happen If London Had grown upwards instead of outwards, <laughs> I guess, but, um, yeah, it was exciting.
0: What, what kind of aspirations did you have for your career at that point in 2003?
1: Um, I don't know. My aspirations have always been kind of vague and uh, imprecise <laughs> and probably still are, really. I was just, um, yeah, sort of enjoying doing stand-up and managing to make a living without having to do a proper job. So uh, I'm not sure I've had kind of precise ambitions. Maybe I should have done, but... Um, <laughs> I've uh, just kind of bumbled along already.
0: Well, you mentioned in your show that... Uh, I saw your show last night at the Gramercy Theatre. It's part of your tour of for Hire. That you went to an all-boys prep school in England. Yeah. Was that a very ambitious lot that you were in with? Uh, no. So this was...
1: Well, you know, I was basically an all-boys private education from the age of, kind of 5 to 18. Um, ambitious, no. Privileged and entitled, <laughs> certainly. Um, no, it was essentially a means of churning out stockbrokers and accountants, as far as I could make out. So not a great deal of uh, overweening political or creative ambition, I don't think.
0: Which one were you going to be, stockbroker uh, an accountant?
1: N- neither. I, don't, I, I did once have one of those employment prospect reports that, you know, you get with a little fill in a few questions and they tell you that you can be a librarian when you grow up. And that, I did say I could be an accountant, so maybe I can fall back on that if comedy <laughs> hits the skids. <laughs> Your
0: test really said accountant? Uh,
1: amongst many other, I mean, it seems to say almost every job. Um, available, so um, it, it seemed pretty imp- basically a complete waste of a couple of hundred pounds. But what
0: appealed to you at the time?
1: Uh, well, I wanted to be a sports journalist, essentially. Okay. Um, and you sort r- of get to
0: do that from yeah. time to time. Now. Yeah. Well,
1: I, d- I write about cricket, um, which is which is a uh, sport. For your American listeners, is is not only a sport; it's the greatest sport, and therefore the greatest thing ever invented. <laughs> and you could have had it here in America, and you blew it. Um, it was quite popular in America for a bit for a while, Philadelphia had one of the best teams in the world, but um, you made the wrong decision on your sports we turned it, as,
0: we turned it into baseball
1: yeah, much as I like baseball it 's clearly inferior but um, <laughs> uh, yeah so that 's what I wanted to do really, and I kind of got into that via comedy in the end.
0: Uh, when was the transition from sports journalism to comedy? Was it the oh. first pun you heard?
1: Uh, <laughs> no, not really. The first pun I heard was probably in the womb, because my, my father is not afraid of the pun and um, <laughs> fears not the infernal breath of the pun. And um, I don't know, it sort of happened by accident, really. I didn't, I didn't get into sports journalism when I left university and ended up editing articles about stock markets for a business publishers, which was even less exciting And spiritually rewarding than I've made it sound And um, (laughs) just sort of gave up on the spur of the moment And um, started doing the uh, open mic comedy circuit in London And uh, that kind of gradually became
0: How old were you in that? Uh, About 25, I guess, 24, 25 Was Um, there a moment when you're in the editing room When you're just like, I've had, I can't do this anymore
1: uh, Well, after about five minutes on day one, I think um, (laughs) I managed to hack it for just under a year um so, so uh, from the first five minutes to yeah.
0: year one that was a that was yeah, a waste a year of, year of
1: drudgery or yeah it was um yeah i I mean I guess it taught me a valuable lesson, and that was that i didn 't really want to do a job that I fundamentally hated, so um, I managed to get out of it and uh find something a bit more rewarding.
0: What made you think that open mic comedy uh was the next step for well
1: you? um I'd had a bit of a go at comedy when I was a student in a student venue. Then I went up to the Edinburgh Festival mostly just to watch the year that I left university and did three open mic gigs that went so badly that I gave up and thought I'd probably never do it again. Mm-hmm. And then it took me another, another 18 months and then um, a friend who was a stand-up and my my girlfriend, now wife, uh, persuaded me to have another go at it. And um, So I guess it had been slightly stewing away in the background for a while, but I'd not really thought of it as a potential career.
0: Now, did career, you... doesn't,
1: career makes it sound more planned than it has been. <laughs> I don't know what the correct term for it is. Did you know where to go to start? Uh, I was told where to go by certain audiences. Um, but, um... <laughs> well, no, there was quite a big open mic circuit in London uh, at the time, so you could do gigs almost every night of the week, just a little five-minute spots. And some of them were good, and some of them were less good. and um, So it was quite a good time. So this was sort of 99 I started... And then started doing student gigs, that's where I met John Oliver, doing uh, a load, of, well i have met him before, but that's where we started working together, doing a lot of gigs in student unions around Britain. And um, uh, yeah, so it was quite a, a good time to be starting in stand-up, I think, there were a lot of, a lot of opportunity for stage time, uh, if not necessarily money, and um, but that sort of, I guess, got you, uh, sort of taught you how to, how to do the basics, and
0: maybe um, yeah, a bit of a launch pad how would you describe your comedy at the time that you met John Um, I can't entirely remember to
1: be honest it wasn't political neither of us was really doing political stuff Uh, it was more surreal a bit whimsical Um, I didn't really know what I was doing Um, John was more of a regular he'd done a lot of done theatre and did uh, sketches and stuff at university and been doing stand-up maybe a little bit longer than me, but um, he was much more of a natural performer, certainly. And uh, But gradually, through working together, we both sort of wanted to do political stuff and kind of encouraged each other to, to start aiming a bit higher than we, we had been in the first year or two of our, of our careers.
0: Well, as an American, I have to say, I, I might not be the, the first or the only person to say this, but there's a distinct pleasure listening to you and listening to john how you have it seems like you've melded right at some point <laughs> <laughs> the minds have melded the cadences right yeah we did it was like I could,
1: <laughs> we spent a lot of time together um i the... hear
0: i hear you when i listen to john i hear john when i listen right. to you
1: yeah um i'm not sure our uh respective accountants would say much similarity <laughs> but um uh we yeah, but they came from that prep school you went to, <laughs> we so that's sp- <laughs> full of we, privilege. We, um, we spent a lot of time together in, uh, I guess, the formative years of our careers. I think we had quite similar approaches in a lot of ways, even you know, before we met. So, um, uh, yeah, it was always really good fun working with them. So we, we worked pretty closely together for five six years before he came out here for the daily show
0: were you uh were you also working the same day jobs together
1: no um i don't know if john ever had a day job i mean i had my one day job for a year and then sort of freelance for a bit while i was starting out in comedy um but uh no i think he managed to avoid Hmm. the horrors of the day job what was yours that you
0: had that for that first year
1: Uh, uh well it was more kind of editing articles okay And um, I had a job transcribing interviews with politicians off the television. Ah, Um, it's a good gig.
0: Well, for for your paying-the-bills-non-comedy gig. um, It's not a lot of hard work. I was watching
1: Trump in the debate, the first debate, um, while I was here. And uh, if you transcribe what he said, it would essentially make no sense. It would be like a series of cryptic crossword clues strung together incoherently. And we had a... When I was doing this job transcribing interviews, our Deputy Prime Minister at the time was a chap called John Prescott, and he made even less sense than Trump. And really, if you couldn't see his face, you had no idea what he was talking about. And he was Deputy Prime Minister. And I don't know quite where he learned to speak. Uh, it didn't appear to be either in England or planet Earth, but anyway, he managed to make himself understood just about
0: that's what they said about they've been saying about sarah palin too i believe the terminology they came up with was word salad word salad yeah that's (laughs) nice what do you just kind of pick words randomly and dump them on a plate (laughs) Um, because if you do transcribe it you're like what yeah what are they even talking about
1: yeah i don't know it's like beat poetry but but gone horribly wrong but if you're
0: just in person or watching on the
1: television yeah, I mean, you're just mesmerised or hypnotised. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think Trump finished a single sentence in that first debate. I mean, I don't Is know, that
0: something a president needs to do?
1: Well, I don't know. I guess you know, just leave it,
0: <laughs> leave it open to interpretation. Maybe that's the way forward. I guess I should also uh, apologise and thank you for your patience. We were supposed to meet. I asked you to meet me at the Trump International Hotel. Yes, uh, which right you will
1: up. be turning into. The White House will be will be sold off. <laughs> For profit, and he will m- he will move
0: the presidential accommodation into his tower, I think. I thought we could have a view of Central Park, yeah. plus be inside the belly of the beast, but it turns out that he doesn't have much of a lobby for that hotel. Right. So who would have who thought that? That's surprising. Yeah, you'd <laughs> have thought it would be a lobby with a
1: massive statue of Donald Trump in it. Yeah.
0: But no, definitely not. all that opulence and... Yeah, it's an opportunity. Maybe. Doesn't want people to lounge around. <laughs> doesn't want people to inspect the interior, I no. guess. Um, so we found this this beautiful hotel lobby instead. Yeah. It's, it's huge. It's tremendous. It's, uh, yeah, we um, can pretend we're both staying in
1: a ridiculous <coughs> Manhattan hotel.
0: <laughs> so what was the moment when you realized that uh, you didn't need that day job anymore, that you could support yourself um, financially with comedy?
1: No one. Not, not sure so there was a single moment. I guess it just gradually happened. And also the more stand-up you're doing, the more you're kind of traveling around the country so you couldn't commit to stuff in the day so I guess within two two and a half years I was doing comedy full-time So, um, yeah which is yeah I guess I was quite lucky um, not sure it's as easy now that there's so many more comedians to get yourself established on the circuit as it was then what
0: was the circuit for you at that point well it was a mixture of um,
1: rooms above pubs comedy clubs student unions and then going up to the Edinburgh Festival and every august for a month and um uh it's gradually learning what did and didn't work and what things you were and weren't prepared
0: to do that's that's really the singular difference between comics in the uk and comics in the united states is the the power and the allure of edinburgh yes because it it Edinburgh forces you to build an entirely new show each year. Yes. Um, if it, you want to go.
1: It's great for that. And um, so after two and a half years, I did my first hour-long show, which was um, it kind of forces you to examine what you're doing as a comedian, why you're doing it, and forces you to write a lot, experiment a lot, fail, and uh, learn through that, rather than just reaching a seven- or ten-minute set that works and, uh, and doing it. Repeatedly, over and over again so it's a great um, creative opportunity at Edinburgh and I think it's where certainly where I and probably John as well and a lot of our comedians of our generation and probably still really discover the, the kind of
0: comedian that we wanted to be and how has that evolved for you over those years of going up for the fringe um, I'm not sure how it's
1: evolved um, I mean in it, the first year I did a solo show and John did sketches in it including coming on as uh, a cow uh, and talking like a footballer and um, playing the part of uh, uh, John Ruskin bringing his cat to the vet um, and uh, it was fun I mean only about 500 people saw it over the course of 28 shows or whatever it was but um, it was a good show for those who did see it seemed to enjoy it Um <laughs> Much like this year's show. <laughs> uh, and uh, he has a slightly bigger audience than that now. Um, but yeah, that was when I started trying to do political stuff. And um, I guess I've just tried to learn each year that I've gone up, tried a few different techniques, a few different um, styles. And always, a lot of it is just about generating new material, kind of developing your range of performance and um, but also it's just fun to do it's a creative melting pot and um it's always been exciting going up and having a show to tinker around with for a month
0: now the bugle started in 2007 Yep. the podcast scene wasn't really even much of a scene at that point did you and john have an idea or strategy or nope. what was the what, had, was the what was the what was the gameplay we had
1: neither an idea nor a strategy nor a game plan <laughs> um, we were presented with an opportunity um, via our agents to do a podcast for the Times already was sponsored um, well the Times hosted it uh, for four years and paid us to do it um, and as you say the podcast market was not as saturated then as it is now um, so we sort of treated it almost like a radio show um, tried to write a good show every week John was already doing the daily show over here and um it just sort of gradually built up an audience. And I think the Times kind of forgot they were doing it and paying for it. So we, they just kind of left us to it.
0: Did they Did they provide their own studio for you or did uh, you have to find your s- own? They provided
1: a studio and um, they paid for John to record in a studio over here. Um, so they gave us a great uh, leg up, I guess, in the early days of the podcast world and helped us get established before there were, you know, three billion podcasts to <laughs> compete with. Um, And, yeah, it was great fun. They left us to it. They didn't interfere. Even just a small part of the evil Murdoch empire. Um, So, uh, yeah, we were lucky, really. And um, we could do whatever we wanted. It was great having that kind of... Not only a weekly deadline, but also kind of total creative freedom. Whereas the radio stuff we'd done on BBC back home was... um, Yeah, very tightly edited and tightly scripted. And we tried to make every line... Work, uh, But with podcast, you can be a lot more expansive and just take ideas. Did the
0: Times promote it in the newspaper itself or on the website? Um, they didn't or promote it, it much at all. How really? did people find you in 2007?
1: Well, I, d- I, d- um, I don't think gradually. iTunes had a podcast page yet. Um, I think they did. Um, it just kind of gradually built, I guess, through word of mouth. They, I mean, they, they occasionally plugged it in the paper. I briefly wrote a column for them that had a little... Um, Note at the bottom saying I was doing this podcast, and um, it was it about cricket it, or it,
0: politics or what was your column? Uh, it
1: was kind of weekly political comment. I only did it for a couple of months, and then they decided they no longer required my services. <laughs> and then they didn't really, they didn't really do a lot to promote the podcast. But it, they, you know, enabled us to gradually build up an audience through word of mouth and people gradually finding it, and um, it sort of built over the years.
0: How. How were you and John able to put so much of it together on a regular basis? Um, well, I guess we... Uh, or uh, was it... How much was was improvised? How much was, uh, how well, much it was, preparation was involved? There
1: was quite a lot of preparation and quite a lot of writing. We were recording in the uh, sort of early years. You know, I mean, you didn't have so. the equipment we have now. Uh, <laughs> that's, um, uh, no, we were in... We were in serious Seriously, studios. though, it was we, different. Yeah. It was, it, was it was a different time technologically. Was, yes, um... Well, like I say, we almost did it more like a radio show than a podcast. It was all like kind of professionally produced. and mm-hmm. uh, uh, So we would write separately. We'd uh, talk a couple of days before the recording, agree what stories we were going to cover, and then um, write separately. And then at the recording, just try and make each other laugh, I guess, and try and surprise each other with different angles we weren't maybe expecting. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess the fact that we'd worked together for so long before John came here, we had a... I guess a kind of natural rapport that worked, even though we, you know, we were down a phone line across the Atlantic.
0: When, when John took the job at HBO, there, were, at what point did, did you realize it was going to be difficult to continue the um, Bugle as,
1: well, as it originally um,
0: was? I don't know.
1: Uh, it, I guess it gradually dawned on us that. It wasn't going to work. I mean, initially, John thought he might even have more time than with the Daily Show because it was just weekly. But um, you know, he's very hands-on with every aspect of the HBO show, and it um, um, obviously cut into his his prep time. So, um, so sadly, he's had to retire from the Bugle. Now, settle down and get a proper job. Um, he's got a hot dog stand in Manhattan somewhere. So. Um, uh,
0: When when was the first moment you thought that you could resume it in some form, either on your own or as it's going to be the case in October with rotating guest hosts? Um,
1: Well, I guess when it became clear that John couldn't commit as he wanted to commit, because he always wanted to keep doing it, and Mm I said to him often, you know, if you can't do it anymore, uh, then you know I don't mind if you if you want to stop, but he always wanted to, and it just Eventually, became clear that that wasn't going to work. So um, I thought about it a bit whether it was worth carrying on, whether you just leave it, and um, uh, that yeah, just thought it might be make an interesting show to have different co-hosts and also people from different places around the world. So uh, we'll see how it goes. I hope our audience sticks with it, and um, I mean it'll be a very different show, but I think it'll still be good. Still have a lot of the original spirit of the, the bugle just no uh, no John Oliver <laughs> no <laughs> tales of um, it'll New be a York different, and, different uh, rapport uh, uh, yeah be very different and uh, my sister's going to be one of the uh, one of the correspondents one of the, the co-hosts have you worked um, with her before? not much a little bit I mean I've, I obviously know her quite well right but uh, the, I've known her since she was of, for business a d- purposes, day old so um but no so I'm really looking forward to that and um and uh yeah, I think it'll be an interesting experiment, I guess. And I think I think it'll work. Well, it what, you're, work.
0: what you're doing right now on tour in America is also an interesting experiment, the Satirist for Hire, yeah. where it's essentially mostly, if not all, by request. Yes. So, When, when was the first time you did a Satirist for Hire so show?
1: So I first did it in London in uh, autumn or fall as you incorrectly call it it's autumn uh of 2013 <laughs> i did a run at soho theater then
0: well fall has so many different uh, connotations as the word <laughs> yeah. autumn is only one thing yeah
1: um so um then i did it the following summer in edinburgh so i did it for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. in soho then didn't do it for almost a year then i toured it around britain and i've since then i've done it kind of monthly in London and sporadically elsewhere. And that the format of the show is that people email me in advance, so the show has an email address, and they can email the topics they want me to satirize in the gig they're coming to. So it's quite an interactive show, as you've seen. that has got a lot of chat with the audience, right. gets through a lot of different issues, ranging from the big political issues to just personal gripes, personal problems, and um, um, <laughs> <Right>. well, <laughs> life, it life advice. <laughs> it, and, um, it also t-
0: seems somewhat like uh, a proactive... Uh, attack on Heckling right. Yeah. You yeah. said no please email me in advance yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything you want to know And I will say your name yeah. <laughs> And address you um, But it's
1: interesting over here The two shows I've done here so far on this tour uh, In Washington DC And uh, in New York I've had more emails than I've had for any show I've ever done Partly because venues are slightly bigger But um, people really seem to have Got into the spirit of it And uh, <laughs> getting a massive range of of topics people think about it quite a lot ranging you know we get asked to satirize the American uh, Revolutionary War and um, obviously a lot about Trump stuff about uh, the global situation about mm-hmm. Brexit and then personal stuff Like oh, a lot of people seem to bring people on first dates to my shows for some bizarre that reason that happened last night yeah. in New York yeah. um, so it's a great fun show to do because it, it, it swings wildly from you know, political satire to Absolute nonsense, and back again, and uh, and it's constantly different. Obviously, there's routines that fall into things people are requested, and um, not everything that I've written brand new for the show works, I can balance it out, I guess, with with existing routines. And, right. um, but people seem to enjoy watching it and the interactive nature of it, and um, it's certainly fun to do as a as a comedian. Constantly well, that's what I was going to yeah. ask.
0: Is, is there something in in your brain that it that it hits? Like the challenge of it, or I
1: guess I'm 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 obsessed with sport, as uh, I've probably made clear during the show. (laughs) Um, Even uh, even like your strange American sports, Um, and this show is almost the closest that I've found stand-up comedy can get to being like sport in that it's a mixture of preparation and improvisation, of kind of you know uh, the sort of spontaneity and stuff that's been written in advance and uh, constantly having to think and adapt uh, and react uh, as well as using your what you might call core skills in sport. So right. it's, um, maybe that's our final way of as close as I'll get to being a professional sportsman, having been blessed with no sporting talent whatsoever. I've managed to artificially create something that vaguely approximates
0: it through stand-up. Yeah, it's almost as if you're a goalie and you've given people football to said, shoot at me as hard yeah, as possible yeah. <laughs> go to the penalty spot and and have your best go yeah. at me
1: i guess it is yeah it could be considered like that yeah and you're the goalie you're yeah, blocking yeah. Them.
0: um you even got some emails during the show yes that <laughs> doesn't usually happen often because i don't and i don't want to encourage that no i don't want to encourage that but i think i
1: had in the end in between when i entered the building about an hour before the show or so and the end of the show 10 more emails came in so um which is faintly
0: ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but um, um, well, at that point, it almost becomes like the 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 nightmare scenario for any comedian, which is meeting somebody and they go, "Oh, you're a comedian. Tell me a joke." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like, would well, no, give me <laughs> well, give me that. a little bit of time to prepare something." Uh,
1: I had that in a in a bar I went to in Brooklyn. I just went to have a quiet beer to relax after the show last night, and uh, got chatting with a, a guy at the bar. I just said, "You know." And he said, "Go on, then tell us a joke." I think, "Oh, come on!" I've just done two and a half hours on stage, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Got no jokes left.
0: <laughs> right, you have a stage, you have tickets. If people want to request That's jokes. Right. Yeah, yeah. They should come to you. <laughs> um, how do you how do you go about building, building your set list for, for a show like this? Well, a lot of it depends it's- on what people have emailed in. I found it
1: slightly tricky these first two in America because I've had so many emails prioritizing the ones that to sort of build the show around. Obviously, some, right. some can do quite quickly. They're sort of short questions. You can give you know, one or two joke answers to them. Others, you know, dealing with the election, there's obviously a huge range of issues to, that you can deal with on that. So um, I try to order them in a way that it's got some of that balance between the serious and the, the less serious uh, through the show. Uh, but it's sort of slightly trial and error and I'm slightly, as you can see, sort of winging it and ed- editing it as I was going along but.
0: Right, because it's, a, it's different from building an hour for Edinburgh Yeah,
1: yeah, very different um, and it also means that I have no sense of time because usually when you do stand up you know sort of how long things take
0: Right. because the show's yep. different every time And you've also practiced it yeah, uh, it's over uh, and over again whereas I'll, this is, yeah, I'll be each the, show is different
1: That's right, so I'll be on stage thinking oh, I've done about half an hour and I look at my watch and it's an hour and 15 minutes and I'm <laughs> late for the interval so... Um, uh, but people seem to enjoy it. People seem The audiences really seem to get into it and uh, yeah. uh, enjoy the spontaneity of it. And it's not quite improvisation, but I guess it's, it's got
0: elements right. of, of that. So do you try to find the same topic for a closer then? Um, or
1: Not really. Um, often I get asked <laughs> to do puns. Uh, right, that's what happened the in the end of the podcast. So, I try and end on a pun run because, not obviously, some people like them, a lot of people don't like them, some people hate them with a visceral intensity. So, you need to do it at the end. So, even if people don't like them, you know, it's only ruining a small part of their evening. So, uh, I sometimes finish on that. Um, sometimes just finish when the time, <laughs> there's a curfew <laughs> coming up. Um, so, yeah, it's slightly, uh, yeah, on the hoof. Um, doesn't always come out the way I've planned it in advance, but as long as people are laughing, and that what seems...
0: What is it about puns that tickles you so? Oh,
1: well, I don't know. Um, I mean, on the Bugle, a lot of it was the horror of John on the other end of the line squirming in disgust, but then, you know, he's been known to throw in the odd pun on his TV work over here. Yes, he has. So there's a deep level of hypocrisy. Um, <laughs> but uh, my dad always cracked puns from uh, <laughs> through our childhood, so um, maybe it's maybe it's from that oh, I mean, but properly contrived I don't know if they count as technically puns or sort of wordplay the more contrived the better from I'm concerned did you get your love of humour from your father? Um, a lot of it I guess um, in fact um, he, he grew up in South Africa and he used to sort MC uh, nights at his university mm. so he sort of did a stand up of sorts I don't know uh, yeah, so I think I've probably got most of those genes from him. Did he has he been able to st- see you when you were younger? Yeah, um, he's seen quite a few shows over the years. Not um, there was one show early on. Fact, I think it was with with John, one of the student gigs we did, and we were with an, another uh, comedian Irish guy called Johnny Candon, who was comparing it. And my parents were there, and it was just a little student gig at about fifty people there. Right. And I, I said to Johnny Candon before we went, on, I said, you know, leave my parents alone, so don't. And the fir- pretty much the first thing he did was start talking to my parents on stage, which they weren't entirely comfortable with. And my father just <laughs> pretended to be deaf, and uh, that kind of rather threw Johnny Cannon off his stride. But it was mm. very funny, to seeing him just <laughs> pretending to be mm. unable to hear anything. So uh,
0: I always ask uh, my guests this to kind of round it out. Um, who or, or what has, has been great in terms of giving you advice and inspiration at, the, at this point in your career? Um, oh, I don't know.
1: Well, so up, up to this point, or? Yeah. Um, I don't know, I learnt, um. Now that I you've learnt, been in uh, it for a while. Yeah, what, I'm not sure. what, I'd say one. what. or who keeps you going? Uh, oh, no, probably the fact that I have two uh, children to feed, <laughs> and, um, and my, my <laughs> wife, who was a lawyer, has, uh, now doing a doctorate, so has become a student, so. <laughs> I've become primary breadwinner, which is not necessarily a status that I naturally fit into. So, um,
0: so you don't need words of wisdom or, no. well, or advice um, to carry you. Yeah, Just I've
1: been, I've been with my wife since my pre-comedy days, and she's always been immensely supportive. As I said, I can't remember if I did this in the gig last night about how she's given me nothing to work with as a comedian because she's, yeah, you, know, you want to have a, you want to have troubles, problems in your relationships, can you? Ample mm-hmm. material traditionally, but she's failed on that count.
0: Has there been any recent advice or, or mottos that you come across though that um, that's helped you?
1: No, not um, not really. Not, okay, no, I don't think so. I've just kind of bumbled along. <laughs> <laughs> some things have happened and some things haven't, so <laughs> it's been it's slightly unplanned and uh,
0: so harmless. on. So on the flip side of that, if a if a young or a new would-be comedian comes up to you and asks you for advice right what's the first thing you tell them
1: uh i'll don't be afraid to fail um you need to um embrace embrace that uh do as much stand up and watch as much stand up as possible if stand up's what you want to get into um and i think the best comedy always has a uh honesty to it it what you know it's what you know, it can be any sort but it just have to come from the the soul uh, as you uh, I suppose in a way um so don't fake it that's all I'd say essentially and um enjoy it that's uh, it's very hard to do good comedy without enjoying the the process of creating it and performing it
0: puns or no puns
1: puns or no puns i'd probably advise against puns <laughs>
0: uh they um <laughs> They yeah, are, I, uh, I, I realized I, I, I didn't prepare any for you, <laughs> so so I don't yeah. feel right asking you for any. <laughs> so uh, the Saturists for Hire tour, where 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 is that taking you for the rest? Uh, well, of, the here, rest of the Well, from
1: here, Philadelphia, Chicago, Portland, Seattle, L.A., uh, Boston. Good planning. Toronto, San Francisco. As you can see there's a bit of a glitch in the uh, ge- geography of that. Uh, all the dates and details are on. Uh, my website, uh, uk. And have you been to all of these cities before? No, uh, I've been to Boston, but none of the others. So, um, uh, yes, excited. Uh, excited to see do, see Do w- you have, do you more have expectations America. of um, seeing the rest well, of the country? Well, I've heard good and bad things about LA, and mostly good things about the other places. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, I'm excited. I want to, and hopefully, see some more sport. I went to my first baseball game here in New York the other day and wanted to see a bit more baseball have you, before have the you season already, ends.
0: Have you already built in more sightseeing into um, the rest of the schedule? I'm not quite
1: sure yet. Also, the Bugle will be relaunching whilst I'm here on the, uh, the 21st of October, so I need to, uh, uh, with uh, Hari Kondabolu, who's going to be doing the first episode, so we'll be um, doing a bit of writing for that. And, uh, I don't know, sightseeing, probably have a bit of time, but... Um, I'm mostly fielding emails from people asking crazy things for the gigs. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy the rest of America. Will do. In allowing me to see your show, it was, it was really fun. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks Andy. Last Things First This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Purzell at Showbird Studios.